Welcome to this peer voice activity. To access the entire activity, including supporting material, go to www.peervoice.com forward slash SGG. This educational activity is supported by an independent educational grant from Vive Healthcare. Vive Healthcare was not involved in the development of content or selection of faculty for this educational activity. Welcome to this peer voice on-demand activity based on a recent live event. This video-based activity comprises four presentations. At any time during this activity, you may download supporting materials and share this activity with colleagues. Uh, good afternoon, everyone. Uh, uh, welcome uh, to our session. We hope you could uh, take your seat. Uh, my name is Sharon Walmsley. I'm uh, from the University of Toronto in Canada, and I'm pleased uh, to be the chairperson uh, for our session today. Uh, we have three fantastic uh, faculty members, uh, including Carolyn Abib-Pop, who comes to us from the University of Bern, uh, Justina Kolaski, who needs no introduction here, given her many roles at this EECS conference, uh, coming to us from the University of Warsaw, and Susan Cole, who is our patient advocate, who recently became a board member of the Global Network of People Living with HIV, so we congratulate her on that. We're going to follow a case of a lady who's newly diagnosed with HIV, and then through her journey as she becomes pregnant and she ages with HIV. So we really want to look at those patient characteristics which help us decide on art therapy uh, as an initial choice in therapy, and then to consider things that happen throughout her life that may change your decisions about that treatment. Uh, so as we begin, it's always good to hear from the mouths of the people that we care for because it's what they feel and what they, their challenges are which are really important for the physician to make sure that we complement their decisions about their therapy. Uh, so I'm going to invite Susan to take the stage and she's going to tell us her life story of living with HIV. Hello everyone, I'm feeling a bit like that dumpling that escaped from the hot pot. So great to, to be here. So, the way that I got my HIV diagnosis, I just moved to rural Louisiana. I'd married my second ex-husband. I've had three ex-husbands so far, always on the lookout for ex-husband number four, if there's anyone in the auditorium. Um, so it didn't cross my mind for a moment that the results would come back as positive. The doctor said to me, the good news is you don't have syphilis, but the bad news is you're HIV positive. My children were four and six at the time, and I knew very little about HIV, apart from the tombstones and icebergs campaigns that we had in the UK. And I asked, how long do you think I've got to live? And the doctor said to me, oh, about seven years or so. Can you imagine how devastating that would be for a mum with young kids? And this was 1999, so there was effective treatment, but the doctor knew very little about HIV. Even though I was living in America, my mum, who was back in the UK, took out a subscription to NAM AIDS Maps treatment information and sent it over to me. And I actually realized then that the, the doctor was wrong that I could 
live a full life with HIV. And I think information is incredibly empowering for people. So in terms of my life, I actually went on to have two more children after my diagnosis, all of whom were born free of HIV. That is actually a picture of me on the cover of Positive Nation magazine, an HIV um, uh, magazine at the time. And what was really incredible is that I, I wrote about the science around women being able to have children free of HIV. And you know, I chose to pose on the cover. I'm happy to say that they did brush out my cellulite, which is always a bonus. And um, what I found was that afterwards, the response was incredible. There actually, uh, a young woman got in touch with me and said that um, her doctor was trying to persuade her to have a termination because she had HIV. And then when she saw that magazine, she actually realized that she could have kids and then she went on to have children herself. So in terms of growing older with HIV, for many of us, we didn't actually think that we would reach this milestone. And often women with HIV are told that we should just be grateful in terms of getting older but the reality is, for many of us, it can be really difficult, particularly as we go through the menopause. In this photo, I'm here with Angelina Namiba and Sylvia Petretti, two fierce women with HIV who have been incredibly important to me because peer support is incredible. And as we grow older, we often face problems such as being ping-ponged around by healthcare professionals. And often when women with HIV go to our, our doctor um, and we say that we're experiencing symptoms of the menopause, we're told it's probably just your HIV. And then when we go back to see our HIV consultant, we're told, oh, you need to go back to your GP. And it can be really difficult. And we heard today at the fantastic WAVE session that women with HIV may experience the menopause a little bit earlier and we may have worse symptoms, yet we find that we're, we're not given the same level of support. There was fantastic research done by Dr. Shima Tarek and colleagues that highlighted the inequalities that women going through the menopause face. However, peer support and information is incredibly important. I was thrilled to be part of the GROWS project, a collaboration with the Sophia Forum and Positively UK and UCL Global Health, where we did a great deal of work around empowering women with information and also highlighting the issues that we experience. Because despite the challenges that we face, we are not passive, voiceless victims. And it's crucially important that we get the care that we deserve, that we're treated with respect, and that the services are led by us, that we play an important role in every aspect of our care. However, I'm also really conscious 
that I have significant privilege in terms of where I'm living and also my, my economic privilege. But for many women living with HIV across Europe and across the world, many face intersecting forms of stigma, discrimination and disadvantage. And very often it isn't HIV that's the problem in women's lives, it's all the other issues that are happening that can act as a barrier to testing, to treatment, and to staying engaged in care. It can be our age, it can be our socioeconomic status, our education. And increasingly, we're finding that women, particularly from racially minoritized communities, are facing greater barriers in terms of health inequalities. And we saw this through COVID and it's, and it's across so many different illnesses and there is not a difference in relation to HIV. And we're not going to be able to reach the 2030 targets until all women, regardless of where we live, are able to benefit from the tremendous progress that we've seen over the years. Thank you very much. So thanks to Susan very much for sharing her story. And I think we've come a very long way with respect to the first parts of her journey and being able to deal with some of those issues. And we're gonna discuss some of those in the concept of 2023. Where we haven't made much impact is on this last slide. And we do continue to have many challenges uh, in terms of dealing with all of these issues uh, that our patients live with on a day-to-day -day basis. Okay, so we're gonna start with starting antiretroviral therapy in a new diagnosis. And this is a case that Justina has shared with us and some of the challenges that they are facing now with many patients immigrating uh, as refugees from the Ukraine here to Poland. And so this was a woman who was newly diagnosed and how that came about is that the refugees do have access to gynecological care. And when she went to the gynecologist here with spotting between periods, that's what led to her HIV diagnosis. And she was obviously shocked about this and started to reflect upon a number of things. Uh, first of all, she's got a three-year-old son with her from a previous Ukrainian partner. Uh, she's come to live now with a Polish man that she met a couple of years ago and just can't believe this HIV and has a lot of questions like, what do I say to my new partner? What do I do about my son? He's fine, should he be tested? And uh, what other tests um, should I have uh, right now? Caroline, so you're the gynecologist, she's, you're the person she's facing, what are you gonna ask in terms of her questions here? So of course this is an individual decision and it has to do um, with her preference as well. So talk to you, talk to her, um, all her fears and considerations about how to start. There's women that might know already somebody living with HIV and is ready to start. And it, for me, it's also um, 
giving her the choice because in a, in a different setting, like if she has to travel to that clinic for a long time, you would rather start with the therapy or if you're living close and you can see your doctor in the next days. And of course, we would like to know about comorbidities, co-infections. We would know, like to know more about to choose therapy. And I think her concerns should be the first priority to make this decision. And I would like to ask Susan, because this is also very important to get peer support or to get somebody. Yeah, absolutely. I, I do think that um, her choice is incredibly important and any decision needs to really be a joint decision making but peer support can be crucially important and we're really fortunate that in some clinics in London that we have peer support workers actually in the clinic that can talk to a woman when she's been diagnosed with HIV and then also there are tremendous um, community organisations that can help. I know the 4M network of mental mothers that Angelina Namiba leads has been enormously helpful for lots of women. So I would certainly say um, signposting a woman to care is really crucially important. So if she actually was tested in pregnancy and was negative, then chances are her baby's going to be fine. Uh, but I think we get caught in this situation sometimes that people think they were tested and they either weren't tested or did not go back for the result. Uh, so if that didn't happen, then her son needs to be tested. And again, we also consider, did she then get infected later in the pregnancy? So if she got tested when she first showed up pregnant, uh, maybe she was um, re-exposed to someone during that pregnancy. And so, you know, it's probably wise that this, this son get tested too. And don't start if she's pregnant and vomiting and has nausea and start later. You can, you can offer her a start treatment one week, two weeks, three weeks later. But I was, what you said is very important. Talk about sexual risk during pregnancy because libido might increase in pregnancy and, and this is important to talk about this to do a retesting, for example, before delivery. Okay, so Justina, what about some of the other issues with rapid testing? So, so first of all, I want to say that I'm in a very privileged position because I admit people as an HIV physician. So 90% of my patients, when I ask them, would you like to start now? They would say, that's why I'm here for which is amazing and tremendous change. And it shows awareness on, and trust to, uh, to the treatment we have, access we have. But of course, it's very important that we retain people in care. So uh, as you said, discussing all around whether it is feasible for a woman to um, disclose HIV status, uh, how much it is hidden within her um, uh, surroundings. We know that uh, according to the newest uh, stigma, um, uh, stigma investigations, um, uh, also the pool done by uh, ECDC and other studies, 30% uh, of HIV positive people still do not choose to acknowledge, uh, to share this information with their closest family circle and friends. But of course, there are also medical issues that, so when I'm thinking about her background, it would be, she comes from a country where 
the uh, epidemic has been driven mainly by injecting drug use in the beginning with the poor adherence, with different patterns of using antivirals. So, and we, for, we are more likely not to know exactly what is the resistance um, for the virus. We, so that would be also my concern, but that would be going with a choice, not with when. For me, it is always like more like into right now. Yeah, and yeah. also to say comorbidities. Absolutely. And I also just like to highlight that women with HIV are disproportionately affected by gender-based violence. And often that violence ramps up during pregnancy. So I think healthcare professionals need to be conscious of that as well and be asking women about that situation. Right. So we have guidelines out there to suggest early start, but I think we have to take both patient factors and provider factors into consideration uh, when we do that and sort of what are the advantages and disadvantages uh, in different situations. So we go on with Maria and she actually doesn't start first day um, because she is concerned maybe she could be pregnant. Um, and uh, basically what has happened is her CD4 count is moderately suppressed at 230. She has a viral load of 65,000 copies. She doesn't have any resistant mutations, <clears throat> excuse me, and she's 5701 negative. Uh, she does not have hepatitis C. She is non-immune to hepatitis B. Her STI screen and her pregnancy screen were all negative. I think everyone in this room is very familiar with the current guidelines uh, for antiretroviral therapy. Uh, all of the guidelines do at this point recommend an integrase inhibitor-based therapy as part of first-line therapy. And then there's some decisions between the different guidelines as to which backbone might be appropriate and whether there are some alternative agents. Uh, and that's uh, based on a lot of uh, different local interpretations of the results. I just wanted to remind everyone that there will be new EACS guidelines that are going to be presented at that, this conference, and that session is on October 19th at 5.15 in the afternoon. <laughs> okay. And maybe we can also add that at, as of today, they are posted online on the EACS website, so you can actually have a peek. Okay, so we always, you know, those are the guidelines, but clearly even some of the audience suggested that there might be other agents or other considerations. And what are some of those things that may change what you do? Well, obviously patient choice is number one. If a patient has a very strong reason for selecting one particular antiretroviral over another, I think you should listen to that decision. And unless there's a reason why not, that should be respected. I think we need to worry about a transmitted resistant mutation. And I think, Justine, in this case, would that be a concern given that she likely acquired this from the Ukraine? Um, what's your thoughts on that? So I think for a new uh, recent uh, epidemic, uh, it is not such a huge uh, issue. However, uh, personally, myself, I would be more away from an NRTI start. Uh, 
but knowing we have a better and more potent ones, uh, it's, it's a different story. But um, again, uh, it's important to acknowledge also that uh, sub-subtypes like A6 are now becoming more into play and whether how that would translate into the effectiveness of uh, treatment needs to be just followed. Correct. And, and hep B co-infections. So we need to remember that part too. And although most of our young people now are being vaccinated against hepatitis B, there still are a number of people who are infectious and it's important then to ensure that they have uh, tenofovir or tenofovir aliphenamide together with uh, 3TC or FTC to cover, uh, to cover that organism. Pregnancy and family practice, how would that change your decision, Caroline? I think it would be very important to ask her about this because it's often forgotten in the consultation to ask about family planning, but also contraceptive, um, use of contraceptive, same, same topic. So ask her if she's planning to have children and, and I think this is um, the main issue. You would choose a different therapy and maybe if she's planning to be pregnant soon or if she's already pregnant. And I think we all continue to learn about the importance of drug-drug interactions. So it's always important to make sure you ask your patient what other medications that they might be taking, not only things that are prescribed, but things that are over the counter that could uh, interfere with the antiretroviral therapy. Uh, we need to think about your concerns about adherence. Now that's really hard. When somebody walks in your door and they're brand new, how are you gonna know about their adherence and their retention and care? And so that's a really difficult one. So I think many of us do see new patients a little bit more frequently at the beginning until we get that understanding. But lastly, and what's crucially important is the availability and cost, you know, and different jurisdictions have different medications available. The price list for different things are different in different countries. And certainly for me, before I would start anybody, I would make sure that they have the ability to, to have them covered or have them paid for um, because it's maybe not an emergency if somebody is going to become poor because they can't uh, afford their medication. Any comments? You know, absolutely. That's a very good point. And even in countries like the UK, there are a number of women who are entitled to free HIV treatment, but because of their immigration status, can't get other care. So I think you need to be really mindful of that. And then also, you know, if a woman can't stay in a particular country, if she has unstatus, immigration status, if she's going to be sent somewhere else, those are all considerations as well. It's important to mention that we have just proved that we can have a really high quality standard of care for migrants. So let's think about all the migrants, not only refugees, but also migrants coming from different countries, uh, from Central Asia, North Africa, that uh, for me now as a doctor, it's very difficult to be able to give whatever is needed for one sort of migrant and not being able to do it still for another migrants. And I think the last thing is we all have to reflect in the guidelines there is no agent that's superior virologically to anything else. You know, some of them are better tolerated, some of them have different formulations, but actually in terms of their ability 
to uh, uh, suppress the virus, there aren't a lot of differences. And I think sometimes people feel badly, oh, I'm getting that because I can't afford it. Well, it, it, you know, we make sure that we have infectious therapy. Okay, we are now going to move on uh, in Maria's story. Uh, and she's 32 years old now, and she is on the combination of dolutegravir and lamivudine at this point, a two-drug therapy. She's always maintained viral suppression uh, since we met her, uh, but now she comes to you having missed her last period, and she's likely six weeks pregnant. Uh, so again, an important point, physicians out there, it's always important always to have regular fertility pregnancy planning conversations with your patient living with HIV so that uh, you can plan for it. Uh, but that being, that being uh, acknowledged, uh, uh, more than half of pregnancies planned are not planned and <laughs> come up as a surprise. First of all, to reflect uh, about the initiation of drugs and therapy, of course, that's not the scene we're in. We're in somebody who's on something. But in terms of the guidelines for recommendations uh, during pregnancy, in general, it's two NRTIs with an integrase inhibitor that is considered to be the preferred therapy uh, with uh, a protease inhibitor, namely darunavir, as being an alternative. And if dolutegravir is not a possibility, uh, then the recommendations are raltegravir, darunavir, or rilpilvirine. And in general, not recommended is bictegravir, duravirine, cabotegravir, uh, the combination, two drug combinations of dolutegravir with either lamivudine, which is what this lady's on, or with rilpilvirine. And the main reason that these things are not recommended, it's not that they don't work or they're toxic, it's just we simply do not have enough information. And unfortunately, that's really the situation with most antiretroviral drugs. We really don't know. We have these pregnancy registries and everybody knows that they're very poorly subscribed to. Uh, and so we don't tend to have the information that we need. And often it's 10 years from the time a drug gets released until we have enough information to say anything about pregnancy. And of course, the field has moved on by then. Uh, and so uh, we really need to gather more data about these agents. And so I'm going to have Caroline just talk a little bit about the ones that are, are recommended and some of our concerns in the past. And I think it was a good answer to stay um, to change on this winning therapy because she was suppressed, she felt well. It's, it's not good to change in early pregnancy. We saw this when we did it because um, she might not tolerate the next regimen. And even if you saw that the dual therapy is not yet recommended, it was, um, it's good to stay because she's happy and she's virally suppressed. So just a short word. I mean, I, I don't want to keep you long here. It's the type of study about dolutegravir and the association with neural tube defects. You remember the first publication showed a nearly nine times increased risk for having a neural tube defect using dolutegravir around conception. And then there, more data was collected from the official Botswana study. And now I think we can lay this to rest because it's 0.11 and there's no difference anymore. So dolutegravir is recommended as a first-line regimen in pregnancy as well. And we should not worry about this. And rem I remember when I worked in Dublin 10 years ago, it was the same issue with efavirenz, and it took very long to get rid of our concerns. But that is why, because we are still, that keeps, keeps us very long worried if, if such a signal shows up. Right. And we were having the conversation this morning 
Remember when you have one lady in your practice that decides to have more than two children or one lady who goes to two doctors. So I had a woman who came and during her first pregnancy, no, we cannot be on the dolutegavir. And then she comes back for the second one. And I said, no, no, this is the, the drug we should use. And she looks at you like you're an idiot, that you completely changed your decision from one pregnancy to the next. So really important to explain these things to your patient. Patient. And... Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think we also need to just be conscious about paradigm shifts in, in terms of treatment. Um, when I uh, gave birth to my son, who's now 18, I was on a Favorenz. And at that time, it was regarded as really dangerous. And, and my son was perfectly fine. Then we had the issues around dolutegravir. And then we found that that was fine. And I think it's really important that that you know, in terms of clinical trials, that women are encouraged, women in pregnancy should be in, in clinical trials. And I, I think it's really important that you, the point that, that you made about the mixed messages that the um, women get in terms of from, from different doctors. And that's why I think it's really important that people are informed and peer support can play a really important role in that as well. And I think it plays, I mean, it's very uh, in a good uh, alignment with uh, EAG's guidelines that state that if the reason for switching in pregnancy is not enough data, it needs to be informed decision and shared decision with the patient. So the patient needs to understand that this is the reason, not because it's not effective, not because it is uh, dangerous, but it it is just not studied enough. And then if... Uh, these women decide to continue, that's important to let it go because losing um, effectiveness in pregnancy is the worst thing that could happen. Absolutely. And given her situation of dolutegavir plus 3TC, we will never have that information that that is as good as triple drug therapy. That study will never happen. We will never have that data. And so what's most important, somebody suppressed and adherent to a combination or being on three pills, right? And in terms of um, medication here um, containing dolotectravir or efavirenz combined either with tenofovir or TAF, you can see here on the slide that the viral suppression is in all three regimens very good. It seems to be a bit faster and a bit more efficient in the dolotecrovia. Um, this study included 643 women, so it's a, it's a good study. And on the next slide, you can see that in terms of adverse pregnancy outcome, they, they looked for um, com, um, the outcome in terms of stillbirth, preterm delivery, and small for gestational age, and they combined it. And you can see here that um, the, the, the um, TAF-containing therapy was, was a little bit better or a less adverse outcome, whereas I think this is reflected in the new guidelines because we were also concerned about using TAF, not having enough data. And that's also in my country that we still were like, is this okay? But it is. And um, I think this is really important that we have more data on the newer drugs. So... Um, I think that is what, what you also said. There's a shift, but we have to explain to our patients and to ourselves. Yes, yeah, so I think the other uh, part to uh, consider is um, how much the body changes in pregnancy and uh, that um, concentrations of drugs might be different. We know that for all studied drugs, they are different. They are lower in a pregnancy than pre or uh, than postpartum of pre-pregnancy. 
Um, and um, what is important is to note that although pharmacokinetics is different, it does not translate into losing effectiveness. So again, coming back to decision being shared, and uh, there is no um, certain purpose for uh, immediate switching just because of pharmacotherapy, uh, pharmacokinetics. And we also discussed that we don't have a tool that would allow us to measure drug concentration. It's not in, pra in clinical practice. And I know, Susan, you shared your experience. And, uh, absolutely. When I was uh, pregnant with my son, um, my adherence was absolutely perfect because the most important thing for me was not to transmit HIV to my baby. However, I developed my um, viral load went up and I developed resistance to efavirenz and then at that time all NNRTIs and also resistance to 3TC. And I know it's one of the things that we were discussing uh, uh, yesterday in terms of why that happened. I, I didn't have that resistance before my pregnancy. My adherence was fantastic. But I mean, initially doctors accused me that I couldn't be taking my treatment properly. And I think it's so important that when we patients talk to you that you actually believe us because it can just be absolutely appalling when we face situations when, when we're not believed. So again, a, a lot of the newer drugs that come out because we don't have the clinical data to, to support these agents, often we'll do pharmacokinetic studies. As was mentioned, drugs do drop off uh, in the later trimester of pregnancy in terms of drug concentrations. But most of the studies that have been done that has not translated into transmissions. Uh, but clearly, the end of pregnancy is a time to watch women much, much more closely in case some changes in pharmacokinetics may happen. Because again, the goal is to make sure we have viral suppression uh, at the time of delivery. And I think the only absolute no-no is a cobicistat-based regimen because we know that that in pregnancy does not support the boosting of either an integrase inhibitor or a protease inhibitor appropriately. And instead of excluding an effective and well-tolerated therapy, we could also um, discuss our concerns with our patient and say, we have not a lot of data or not maybe we want to have more in the future, but would you like to stay on the therapy? And this is an informed and shared decision-making. And, and if it's effective and well-tolerated, I think this is really important during pregnancy, not to switch too, too fast and, and, and risk a viral rebound during pregnancy. Okay, so there's just a few other things, uh, Caroline, that we should do during pregnancy. So we already said that we should monitor our women and monthly or bi-monthly, that's depending on the setting. But it's very important to have the viral load close to delivery date to see if she needs a cesarean section or she can have a vaginal delivery. Of course, um, we also should give folic acid. And I forgot this to say this before. There's a systematic review of this year showing that folic acid supplementation has, does, does no harm. So it's really, really good to avoid neural tube defects, to, to lower the prevalence. And you can start six weeks, three months before she, she wants babies and you can start to give her folic acid. And of course, um, consider also other SCIs. You know, syphilis, the congenital syphilis is really worrying. Um, it's rising. And sometimes we don't even have the right treatment in, our, in different settings. 
So please um, do test for other sexually transmitted infections during pregnancy and before delivery again, as we said before, taking sexual history before. And a reinforce to do it again before delivery. And I think that around the world, we are seeing more congenital syphilis than we have seen in a very long period of time. And there's a simple way to, to deal with that. So we're going to go on to the next part of her story now. She's uh, suppressed. And so what do we do now? Uh, so now Maria's 45. Boy, time's flying, eh? <laughs> I hope for us it doesn't. <laughs> so again, Maria has been fantastic. She's maintained virologic suppression. She's never had resistance. She's adherent. She comes. She's an ideal patient, <laughs> except she came pregnant, right? Uh, her current T-count is 800, so everything is fantastic. She was switched uh, during her pregnancy, and so she's now on dolutegavir, TAF, and FTC. I feel great, I have no health concerns, I'm active, I eat well, everything perfect. But you all get this question, what's new? Is there something else that I should be thinking about? So Justina. Yes, so um, of course we are concerned with the long-term uh, efficacy, uh, sorry, long-term um, uh, long-term toxicities and uh, we are aware that women are at risk of developing uh, um, cardiovascular bone uh, and other diseases uh, and we have now uh, many options available to um, uh, to meet and address uh, that issue um, and we could think about decreasing the number of active substances and there are Two possible options, one is oral, one is injectable. And we discussed um, pros and cons already to some extent. We also discussed that uh, Maria might have problems with disclosing her HIV status. So this is for sure one of the pros for having uh, an injectable. We know that now when she already has had her pregnancy and is on a different stage of life, this is not uh, at, at risk. Um, so, um, as I said, there is another a discussion, again, a discussion with the patient on how to move forward and whether we can get bet more, still more from uh, treatment. Right. So this, you know, should always be a conversation. And, you know, we often get from patients, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. And I believe in that adage to some point. But I think it's our role to look ahead, even though something may not be broke now, might there be issues in the future that we could proactively deal with. But the other is to consider the patient choices. And sometimes we don't think about this. And I must say, in my own practice, I've been quite surprised by who actually wants an injectable. And we are not very good judges of who might like that or not not like that. And, and many of my tiny little East Indian women who have practically no body fat are absolutely thrilled to be able to take this because again, they don't want that oral pill in the home. They don't want anybody to see that. And uh, so I think it's really important to discuss with your patients when new things are available and if they're happy on what they're on and there's no long-term toxicity, then just leave it alone. Yeah. Mm. 
Yeah, absolutely. But we also need to be conscious of the fact that for some patients, particularly from migrant communities who may be worried about rocking the boat by asking or may be experiencing side effects and may be uncomfortable um, with the medication that they're on, um, but are worried about approaching their doctor. And also we need to be conscious of the fact that for some women, when they do speak up, about their concerns and wanting to switch, there are some doctors who are like, oh, well, you're, you know, your bloods are fine, so it, it's all okay. So I think that they're, they're also really important considerations. And I think, you know, again, knowledge is the most empowering thing for women to actually know what options are out there and, and to have proper conversations with their healthcare professionals. And I always wonder what flexibility means. Usually it's different meaning for different people. So for some of my patients, flexibility means that my partner can pick up my pills at your clinic. <laughs> and with injectable, this is not the case. For others is that I don't need to watch out my timing of taking the pills because I travel a lot, right? Absolutely, and I was talking to one young woman who was saying that she has to go to Dubai a lot um, for work and is terrified about her HIV medication being found in her luggage. So yeah, that's another consideration as well. Okay, so what do we need to think about with people with virologic suppression, okay, about switching? And I think we've, we've touched on many of these but we need to think about things of the patient and we need to think about things of the regimen. So in terms of the patient, always, always remember, you know, in this case, it's easy. She's always been suppressed. But for your patients who've not been suppressed in the past, you need to really understand why. Why were they not suppressed? What were they on at the time? Why did it fail? And what resistant mutations were there? Uh, clearly, if you're going to consider a Bacavir in their combination, you need to know their uh, uh, 5701 status. And we talked already about preferences and adherence. So, Ruji, uh, what about the regimen? I think the most important vote would be from a patient that we discuss pros and cons. And because more or less we are not certain that one is better than any other, it should be, as we said, a, a, jo a joint discussion. But of course, we need to go through a lot of different questions uh, as we discuss whether this person would be available for a shot within a certain term, a certain period of time. We know women are devoted, they are natu natural carriers, they are devoted to their family more than to their own health. So it all uh, absolutely depends. And also comorbidities that are different for different people, family risks. So. We, we can have a, a woman who has a heavy family risk of a, a myocardial infarction, and that would drive our understanding of what's better for her. And don't forget about those co-infections. And I think one of the things when people drop down to the two-drug therapy, they forget about that hepatitis B or don't have access to it. Make sure that that's something you consider. Have that somewhere on your chart so, so it is remembered. And Maria, she was not vaccinated against hepatitis B. So this is always my concern because we forget about it because we are all... Uh, our population is, has been vaccinated, but it's not the case for, for migrants, so they are very vulnerable here. 
and also I'm I'm in a situation where um, I, I I get the, um, the Hep B vaccine and it's not taking as well, and that's a situation that that's affecting some of us too. So most of the audience chose to use the uh, two drug combination of oral dolutegravir uh, together with lamivudine. There have been three different switch studies all that showed in people who do not have any underlying resistance that the switching to dolutegravir-3-TC was as efficacious uh, uh, in that situation. And Caroline, the cabotegravir story? I mean, this is the study about the um, long-acting injectable, and I think it's really important, as we said, it's um, very efficient, and the, here you can see in the ATLAS study the efficacy about 96 weeks. So um, if women say I'm afraid of injections, I, I wanted to raise that before. I have other women, they never would take the, the injectable for contraception, so there's a no-go. But if they, if they agree to, to show up regularly, this is really a good option. And of course, there are some predictors um, that you should not use it, uh, preferably a BMI over 30 and um, so, and and the resistance. Of course, you have to take the history and and look at her treatment before. But I think it's it's really a a nice option we we have. Right. And again, you know that the failures have been small, and it's not usually just one of those underlying factors, the, with <laughs> the exception of the real pilverine resistance. And I don't think I would use it in that setting. It's usually the combination of things. And again, the BMI over 30, a little bit has to do with the needle. And the kits that come were too short, and we had to get some longer needles ordered through our clinic for people who have a larger BMI. Um, and the whole idea is you're trying to get it into the muscle, and I think that was part of the reason is, is that it just wasn't getting there. Okay, so it's about joint decision-making. <laughs> and I think your patient will really appreciate to be involved in the decision that makes such a difference. Um, inform about the situation, inform about the options, and then she will be much more motivated to be adherent if she has also a choice and she feels she feels good and well informed that is makes the point and you know my bias i said i'm always up for clinical trials you know and again we need more women in clinical trials and so one of the things that they may want to say well what's coming maybe i shouldn't switch now maybe i should wait because there's something more coming and i think again as this audience knows they're fostemsevir has been licensed in many countries for a multi-drug uh, experience patient, but sometimes it's useful in the setting of drug interactions. We know that the studies of Islatosphere and Duravarine are ongoing, and there's much data being presented at this conference on the effectiveness of that combination. Uh, lenacapavir being a capsid inhibitor is, is now being studied in some of the monoclonal antibodies. But again, uh, we're doing bad in terms of getting women into these trials. And again, if there are gender differences uh, in terms of the activity of these drugs, we need to understand that and, and we need to have more women in our trials and uh, we need to continue to push, uh, push for that. Okay, so we're going to move on to the last section uh, about age change uh, and maintaining viral suppression, the menopause and more. Uh, does everyone know that today is World National or National Menopause Day? So go hug a menopausal woman. Uh, I'm available. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> 
Okay, so Maria's 51 now. She's moving along. She's still excellent. Look at that. She's still suppressed. She's got no mutation. She adheres like crazy. Uh, her T count's 850. She did elect to go on the long-acting cabotegravir and ropilverine, which she's getting bi-monthly. But, and that always happens, right? You make a change and then something happens. So she's gained five kilos in the last two years. Her blood sugar's rising. She's got some perimenopausal symptoms. And here she is, and she comes to you. Is all of this me going through the menopause? Or is this this new drug you gave me? <laughs> so even if you're not a gynecologist, be brave and ask for her menstrual cycle. Ask if she's still regular period or not, because this will help you to decide. And women living with HIV and menopause, there's different consideration you see on this slide, because we, we actually need to raise awareness um, around women, what the symptoms are, that they can come to us and inform us that this might be menopause and this is not a depression that, that arises suddenly. Mood changes, joint pain, uh, uh, joint, joint pain and um, hot flushes, of course, or sleep disturbances, brain fog, all those issues, I think this is important, the education, that those are um, symptoms. And there's, of course, there's a rating scale that is, that is very good to, to, um, to compare um, symptoms and to use it as a self-assessment. So women will be aware, oh, this is a symptom that could be menopause. This is also good education if you have such a scale, rating scale in your, in your clinic. Yeah, absolutely. And, and so many of these issues come up with uh, the women that I, I work with at, at NAM AIDS Map in terms of information. And often women are aware of things like hot flushes and maybe a little bit of moon swings, but aren't aware of like, repeat urinary tract infections, for instance. And that could have a, a really awful impact and can impact on things like sexual pleasure. Something that we often uh, is often ignored in terms of women generally as we get older, but particularly for older women with HIV as well, that these other considerations aren't considered. And we know that women with HIV may experience the menopause a little bit earlier and may have worse symptoms, but are less likely to be helped. And often we're ping-ponged around by healthcare professionals. And many women are really despairing about that. Right, and just a little plug in light of World Menopause Day, uh, some of the Canadian physicians together with one of our community groups called CATIE, Canadian uh, Information Exchange, have put out a, a booklet today for women and physicians to have these conversations around the menopause and to help women understand them. And if uh, you can't find it, send us an email and, and we'll send you a copy. So, Caroline. So this is what I said before, women have to find out, is this menopause or is this just aging? Is it the ART? As I said, often it's misdiagnosed or wrongly diagnosed as depression. So I think this is very important and um, to, to, to get the symptoms sorted and also to ask women, I mean, we, we want to improve quality of life. We won't, don't want to treat any laboratory, laboratory levels of estrogen. So don't do them. Um, it's menopause, it's over years, so it's really important to ask women what is disturbing you most 
and that is where the treatment starts. And if you, if the early, uh, if the menopause is early, there's no doubt that we should offer menopausal hormonal um, replacement. So we we have to give systemic therapy because of um, um, the more, um, yeah, it's the a great advantage. Um, not having osteoporosis or um, dementia later on. But if the menopause happens at the natural time, around 50, we ask women what is the main, con um, the main um, symptom that disturbs you and would you like to sleep better, would you like to have less hot flushes, what is the... Because otherwise we, treat, um, we don't treat the laboratory results, we just want to know how we can improve her quality of life. But, but swinging back, okay, swinging back, clearly many of our patients have heard all of this talk for the last couple of years about weight gain and is it the antiretroviral drugs and the metabolic change, is it the weight gain, is it the drugs? Uh, Christina, you want to, or Justina, you want to uh, weigh in on this one? Yeah, so um, first of all, I think it's important to acknowledge that on the baseline, we see more and more obesity problems. So the, our population as such, and also population of people living with HIV who are first comers, would have more risks for obesity. So just not to blame the treatment with all. Secondly, we know that there are some drugs, um, specifically dolutegravir, bictegravir, and uh, TOF, that are linked um, to uh, the higher body weight, but we do not have any evidence that would allow us to just uh, predefine pre the switching. It still needs to be pros and cons discussion. So I guess that's why we are sitting here and having this topic, because this is not something that uh, the uh, um, recommendations would tell you. And also it is uh, important to discuss healthy diet with a patient, something we don't do like we don't do uh, about menopause. People, we assume people know what means to have a healthy diet, but do they? Well, I think very often as well, we need to be conscious of the fact that for many women living with HIV, they're living in poverty and healthy diets are expensive. So we need to be conscious of that. And then also just in terms of weight gain, um, for some women, it comes up more as a problem that women are talking to me about than any other issue. And some women are saying to me, they keep going back to their doctor who says, oh, change your diet, do a bit more exercise. But they say that they're doing everything. And recently a woman said to me that she's been cutting back on her, um, her HIV treatment because the doctor isn't listening and she needs to try and do something herself. So what we, what we need to do more is to encourage patients that will do tests and we do regularly test for a glucose serum level and just a simple measurements, uh, the body weight. But I find myself sometimes uh, a little bit ashamed to ask about it because I'm afraid it's like pre-judgmental because you can clearly see obesity or overweight. So when you ask how much do you weigh, so I try to ask, to remember to ask about it every visit and every patient in this way, so not to stigmatize obesity per se. And so we always get caught with, you know, is it the HIV medications? Is it something else, diet, exercise, something else? Is it another disorder like hypothyroidism sometimes pops up? And then again, it's what's the expectation? And, you know, again, 
so far, we do not have any data that switching the antiretroviral medication is going to make weight gain go away, even if it was the cause. Yeah. And a healthy lifestyle Maria had, but we should ask her, did something change? If she is very sad and not motivated to have that healthy lifestyle anymore, if there's any mood changes, I think some people, when they have those mood changes and they are depressed and they, they, they eat more, even when they sleep less. So it's, it's also to disentangle those symptoms with just taking more weight because, because they, they're, they're not in a good, good lifestyle, not a lifestyle, in a quality of life. They don't feel good, so they eat more. And if you address that to you women, some would admit and say, yes, if you give me hormones or if I have a better life and a new sex life because you give me local estrogens, they, they might feel better and be more motivated to go back to the lifestyle. It's, it's important, I think. Yeah, absolutely. I, I very much agree with you. Um, but a research that came out of the PRIME study in the UK, um, led by Dr. Shima Tarek from UCL, found that um, women going through the menopause had high rates of emotional distress. And um, something that was picked up in the research was that um, black older women were more likely to experience emotional distress, but were less likely to be offered any help. So, you know, there is inequity uh, um, and discrimination in, in healthcare services. And um, we can't ignore that. Um, action needs to be taken to address the health inequities that women of color are experiencing. And also to add a little uh, bit to that, is that we should look into, into other co-medications because we have such a huge issue with mental uh, uh, health and uh, well-being and antidepressants. I would always look at antidepressant as being the main, uh, you know, gain cause for <laughs> So, women aging with HIV, I think we always need to think about the, that the menopause transmission or transition, sorry about that, is often a time that there's other comorbidities that start to become at risk. So as they lose their natural uh, estrogen, there is an increased risk of bone mineral density and the risk of fragility fractures. Uh, we heard this morning in the WAVE session about the risk of uh, cardiovascular disease and diabetes. Uh, everyone as they age has declining renal function. We've talked a little bit about emotional well-being. Uh, we can't forget with our aging women to do their routine cancer screening for breast and cervical cancer and colon. And that often gets missed because if they're seeing an HIV person or a gynecologist, they may not have a primary care physician who takes care of those things. So it's important that we watch that. Uh, we talked about weight gain. Again, it's a period of cognitive impairment, and we've addressed some of the, the, the uh, uh, sexual um, considerations as women age. Uh, but really, we're going to talk a little bit now about the menopause and how best we deal with that. And, and again, Caroline is our expert on this one. So um, we talked about this, that it's not only aging, but it's also menopause that aggravates those, um, those issues mentioned. The osteoporosis, vitamin D and calcium and, and actually physical um, like sports doing having a healthy lifestyle, this is really important to offer to every woman. Instead of measuring bone density and seeing, oh, it's, it's decreasing, um, 
do the basis and and because vitamin D um, is is really easy to to supplement. And I talked about this brain fog issue, this cognitive impairment. There's good studies showing that this is really um, important to address and to ask for. The mood disorder we discussed too. And I would like to stress also the cardiovascular disease because there is new research showing that stress with um, caused by menopausal symptoms like hot flushes really stress for the body and for the woman. Some women, they, they wouldn't go to work anymore or don't show, show up in public places, they stay at home because of those hot flushes. So this is really an indication to offer a hormone replacement because this is just, um, this shouldn't be like this. And it's in terms of cardiovascular risk, it has been shown in studies that it has a reduced cardiovascular risk in women having done replacement therapy and suffering less from those hot flushes. But on this slide, I want to stress that Local estrogen is allowed nearly for everybody. Either you have an allergy or some you don't tolerate it, but you can give every woman over 50, you can offer local estrogen. Um, and it reduces not only vaginal dryness, but also can reduce um, um, normal um, bladder infections, like you, you have less urogenital infections. And the systemic therapy is a different topic because then you have to see if there's any contra contraindications to give systemic estrogen and progesterone. So um, it's the same as with the contraceptives. You have to ask for thromboembolic risk. And um, if, as, as I said, if there's good reason to, to give it, um, don't uh, talk to your gynecologist because your patient will be so happy and coming back maybe. Some women come back to me and say, it's a new life. Um, if they started replacement therapy. And there's this window of opportunity because you shouldn't wait five years, no, no periods, and then start. You should use the first years. And as everybody of you might know, the increased breast cancer risk offering therapy, the old study, that's, um, that's not like this anymore because we give the transdermal way and, and that um, has not... Uh, really not an um, increased risk for breast cancer. So I think it's really inform women and empower them to make their decision together with you and your gynecologist. And I think a lot of the reason why physicians don't prescribe this is they're worried about drug interactions. So that's often the, the, the concern there. And obviously with integrase inhibitor-based therapy being the norm these days, uh, there's really not an issue there. Uh, but there are um, both the, uh, we have a, a pharmacy thing on our website, but there's also the one from the UK uh, where they have clear charts about the safety uh, of using these medications uh, together with antiretroviral drugs. Uh, so that shouldn't be um, a, a big concern. And that, that's often, uh, again, with this complex care with multiple physicians looking after our patients, uh, not talking to each other. But, but I think it's very important also to do uh, the pre-medical uh, education. So I think we need uh, NGOs and um, organizations educating women on board. And these patient-reported re uh, outcomes are very important because this is something that patients can do and report themselves. And going through, I mean, we did the menopause um, uh, scale uh, at the nurses' meeting, and all the nurses, they were doing it for themselves, and they were so surprised that, first of all, there is uh, some kind of tool that can lead you through the process, and secondly, 
then they were thinking, okay, hot flashes. Oh, yeah, really? Absolutely. And I would, I would encourage doctors to encourage their patients to, to get information. I know that there's lots on aidsmap.com, both in terms of um, articles and also video information, and also from the SOFIA Forum and um, resources um, from the GROWS Project as well. Okay, so we presented a lot of information today. We didn't want to data-driven, but we rather thought it would be important for us to have a conversation around some of the questions that we have when we manage patients, and we're sure that you have them as well. We used Maria as an example to show some of the considerations that need to be taken when a person starts antiretroviral therapy, uh, becomes pregnant on antiretroviral therapy, needs to change their antiretroviral therapy or starts to age on antiretroviral therapy. And I think an important take-home message that you heard again and again was it's so important to engage your person, uh, your patient with you in terms of making those decisions and that you make those decisions together because often there's not a right answer, but there's many possibilities that, that are open to her. Uh, anybody want to make any last-minute comments? And if not... Uh, we will open it up uh, to any questions you might have. There's some questions come in, which we will try and address. There's also microphones if anybody would like to come to them. Uh, so the first one, um, we've answered some of these, but uh, Caroline, does menopause amplify the effects of HIV on cardiovascular, uh, psychological, and <laughs> and doesn't yeah, I, would, I think we addressed that, that it's not only aging, but it's the menopause, and it's so different. As I said, it's not, so estrogen levels do not, are not associated with symptoms, and, but of course, this is a vulnerable phase where, well, as I said, stress and, and not well-being and cardiovascular risk, this is really new, um, that, that the studies showed if you treat women at the right time in this window of opportunity when, when they goes through menopause, that means the, around two years before the last bleeding, two years or five years later. So this is really um, an opportunity to, to, to do good with, with replacement therapy. But of course, she has to agree There's completely women, they said, never, ever. I try all the natural stuff and it's good. There's so many, um, there's so many herbal things that you can also be used and they are, they are really not bad, but and there's a cultural background, Susan, you might know that what some women say, this worked in my, in my um, grandmother and in my mother, so I take the same. And you don't have to push them in a, in a, in a direction, but you have to take that, the hair complaints. And in terms of those risks, I think we have addressed that. We, it, it is helpful, yes. But I think we also had uh, this discussion that is extremely interesting, the association between uh, estrogen and hormones and immune activation. And we know that immune activation is associated to comorbidities. So I think that the question is absolutely important. And the problem is that we have so little evidence on that. So if we can encourage any um, basic science studies that would research more the immune activation in women because we know they, that it definitely differs, that estrogens makes a difference and women are uh, more likely to, uh, to some extent, progress less, but then it, they catch up with having a clinical 
so to say, progression, the same as men. So there is so much questions around here. Absolutely. And I, I think that the, the whole issue around inflammation, particularly around um, the time of menopause and the, the number of different drivers of inflammation for women and the importance of, of estrogen. And you know, we really need to find out the, you know, what impact that's really going to have in terms of inflammation. It does seem to be really positive. But when we're hearing about women with HIV going to the doctor and being told, no, sorry, women with HIV shouldn't have HRT, even though we are at greater risk in terms of cardio, cardiovascular problems, that it's, it's, it's a real consideration. And I think empowerment through information is really key and peer support. So building on that, here's the question, what do you do about it if the woman smokes? How much is she smoking? <laughs> so it, it's like, um, as I said, it's a risk calculation. If she's um, a heavy smoker, I mean, it's all about the thromboembolic risk, um, I think. And we know that the transdermal version of hormones is much better than the oral version in terms of thromboembolic risk. So um, we have to really tell her she should stop smoking and have a better life with hormones. But it's really an individual decision and, and see other risk factors. If she's smoking a little and, and active and not overweight or if, if all the factors go against it, then I'm also not prescribing. But I always tell my patients that if your HIV is positive and you smoke and then you quit, you gain much more in terms of decreasing the risk than a non-HIV positive person who smokes and drops. So. On other ter in other way, we need to make people aware that smoking in HIV people is giving more harm than in non-HIV people. So, so most of our questions are on the menopause. Here's another one. Uh, so if a woman, she's, um, uh, the woman ha is menopausal and has um, vaginal atrophy, is she at higher risk of acquiring HIV? Good question. We talked about this, yeah, this epidemic. That's what we think, but the evidence, yeah. again, um, have we don't study. have that. But that would be natural to think, right? Uh, you know, that we don't have evidence is the issue. I mean, I think there are theoretical reasons for it, uh, and there are certainly experimental models that would lead us to, to, uh, to worry about that, but there is not firm evidence. I think the risk is higher. She's not considering herself at risk and going on a nice holiday and having sex with 60. And no, nobody talked to her that she, she, should, she, should, she should test after before. And, and I think that is more risk than the atrophy maybe. Talk about her life and offer her PrEP if she's <laughs> not HIV yet or, or talk about it and with the atrophy, I'm, I'm, there's no studies, but we know that if there's an inflammation like bacterial vaginosis, there are studies that it has an increased risk of acquiring HIV. Uh, I have to excuse myself. Thank yes. you very much. Justina is speaking in the Thanks. next uh, in the next symposium, so we we will give her uh, seven minutes uh, early. We'll give her a leave. Uh, so now we're, we're going to switch gears a little bit and talk a little bit about uh, pregnancy and delivery. Uh, and a question is asked, if a woman is undetectable at, at term, uh, vaginal or cesarean section, and th then you know what's coming, but start with that part. <laughs> 
of course, vaginal. And I was asked today about the threshold of viral load. Of course, this changed over time, has been 400, 200, 50, 20. But it's, it's all about being suppressed around delivery, offer her a vaginal delivery. But I also talked to this woman today asking me about the threshold of viral load. What does women want? I mean, there's, of course, elective cesarean sections because women choose to have a cesarean section. Don't forget this. She's not obliged to have a vaginal delivery if she's suppressed. Uh, yes. Um, oh, I forgot what I was going to say. Yeah, so again, I think the whole issue is what do we consider suppressed? And again, it comes back to that education thing. Uh, in Canada, we keep changing our viral load assay. And, uh, you know, we had a viral load assay of 50 copies for a very long period of time. And now we have one at 20. And we have many people between 20 and 50 that we do not believe is clinically relevant. But a pregnant woman sees herself between 20 and 50 and now starts to worry if she's going to transmit to her, to her baby. So, again, it's back to that whole um, discussion. So, so another issue, uh, and, and I know I've had to address this one before too, uh, ideal situation, woman is suppressed at term, uh, baby's delivered vaginally, everything is fine. Does the baby require antiretroviral therapy? <laughs> oh, that's a loose, loose from <laughs> Because Switzerland um, gave up the post-exposure <laughs> prophylaxis um, um, as a first country, I think, and we are, we are a small country, so... We can't go back to huge data, but we're not using post-exposure prophylaxis anymore, and it's, it's going well. So we don't believe that one drug, if there's, the mother was suppressed throughout pregnancy, how can one antiretroviral do anything? And I did research about 23 countries. Some give it for four weeks, some for six weeks, some only two weeks. So even this was always unclear. And we give a triple combination if there's an issue, but we gave up um, post-exposure prophylaxis in, in babies born to women being suppressed throughout pregnancy. Switzerland yeah. always takes the front <laughs> on, these, uh, on these statements, but they've been right before, right? Absolutely, and things have changed so much. When I gave birth to my son, who's now 18, I had a bloodless c-section as well so it was like a kind of like a smell of barbecuing <laughs> in relation to that and then i think it was about um six weeks that he had um a treatment just in case so you know that we things do shift over time and i think this is a thing where guidelines are not consistent and i think as you outlined the swiss do not use anything anymore. There are some countries that continue to use triple antiretroviral combination for six weeks or more. There are some places that use dual drugs for two weeks. There is no consistency. Uh, and I think this is another area that I think uh, guidelines need to get together um, because you shouldn't be treated differently because you live in a different jurisdiction. Yeah. Uh, and then the last question, which uh, was addressed quite a bit this morning, but uh, should this woman breastfeed in that same scenario? So is it important to this woman to breastfeed? Um, this is, it's, we, we, we say it's important to discuss it early during pregnancy. It's not a good point when the baby is born to say, do you want to breastfeed? Because either you give the medication to stop lactation or she should be supported. So we won't push women in one way in Switzerland. We offer an early pregnancy talk about the option to breastfeed. If the circumstances are, are good, if she's virally suppressed and she's motivated to do so, 
And I think it's great for some women, they start to cry and they say, I always wanted to breastfeed my last two babies and now I can do it really. And But there's also women, they, they say, I never wanted to breastfeed. So it's again an individual decision. But what we have to make clear here, you, you said, do you say she should breastfeed? I mean, of course, breastfeeding is very important in terms of for the baby, health advantages. But as I said, it's also an individual decision. And I think Susan can make a very good comment to that topic, that we as healthcare providers are just there to inform and then the decision is made together. Uh, absolutely. As my colleague Angelina Namiba said in the, the WAVE session this morning, the women need to be given the information to make an informed decision about what's right for them. And there can be a number of different reasons why a woman may want to breastfeed or not breastfeed. And I think choice is really important and healthcare professionals should support a woman in terms of the decision that she wants to make and also just be aware of the fact that some women will breastfeed anyway and not talk to their doctor about it so it's so much better if there's partnership in terms of decisions around that. And we looked at the reason mentioned by women in Switzerland 25 breastfeeding and the most important reason to decide for breastfeeding was bonding with their baby. We thought it might be disclosure of their HIV status, like stigma, and it was the bonding and the health advantages, like less um, better weight loss after pregnancy, less diabetes and less allergies in the babies. So this was the main reason. And we also were concerned about ART in breast milk. I think this is, a, as I'm asked by women, what about the, the low dosage that goes through breast milk to the baby? It's normally less than 10% of the infant dose that goes to the baby through breast milk. So it, it's, um, there's no, so far we, we have little data, but there's so far no concerns about toxicity of, of those small doses going to the baby during the breastfeeding period. But it's also something to discuss. But I think, you know, again, a paradigm shift that we've always said no, and now we're saying okay. And I think we need to make sure that we explain that U equals U does not apply to breast milk, that the risk is not zero like it is for um, sexual transmission. And as you say, it's part of that informed decision looking at the pros and cons. So I would like to take the opportunity to thank our speakers this afternoon for excellent conversation uh, and discussion on many of these controversial issues. We hope that many of you have been able to adapt some of our findings to your own practice. And we wish you all a great conference and thank you for your participation. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. This has been an activity published by Peer Voice.